CC Growth Journeys from Emerging Ecosystems to Global Markets. You should open an office somewhere else, either Berlin, London, or the US, for sales and marketing as early as possible, because uh, having people like come to Portugal to help you on that. Um, I mean, opens a structure that it's unsustainable and it's gonna, it's gonna bite you a little bit in the future. Believe me, she knows. Cristina is the co-founder of TalkDesk, the unicorn helpdesk software company that raised $125 million to date. She later joined Indico Partners where they founded the next generation of startups out of Portugal. In this episode, we'll learn about her journey at TalkDesk, discuss her perspectives as a venture capitalist and get insights into the evolution of the Portuguese ecosystem. Here we go. Hello, Cristina. How are you? All good. What about you? Great, great. What a pleasure to do this interview with you. Yeah, likewise. It's a pleasure to have you. Let's start off with your entrepreneurial experience at TalkDesk and go back to 2011. You guys entered Twilio's competition, won it, and were accepted to Fifan Startups Batch 3, after which you raised 500k the same year. Entrepreneurs are often fascinated by how fast things move in the US, and especially in the technology space. Were you guys expecting such fast developments back then? Well, of course not. but. I tell this story a million times, which is, I don't think what made the difference was how things happened fast when we, we went to the US. After we won this Twilio competition, uh, we, like, we got an offer to enter 500 startups. We came back to Portugal, we packed our stuff, and we moved to the States in two weeks to do the program. And like three months later, we raised a round. So that's very unlikely to happen in the startup arena these days. But what's worth mentioning is that one year before that, me and Tiago, my co-founder, we spent that year trying ideas, putting them on the internet, testing and seeing if they would work. So we basically tried to launch three online businesses, which was our name and the name in Portugal for startups that no one understood what that was at the time. And we were learning as much as we could. We, like, we were learning like Ruby and all the new web technologies all the front-end frameworks, how to do online marketing, uh, buying as many books as we could. So although then everything converged in a super short time frame, before that, we were preparing and seeing no results for a year. I must say that we were a little bit tired <laughs> already when all that happened. So it's not covered by the news, but that was the important part. And when did you decide to double down on TalkDesk? Uh, what made you build conviction in TalkDesk that you left all the other projects and just concentrated on it? It was quite easy. We, with the Twilio competition, and then we, the Twilio competition, of course, was an important milestone. And that brought us like some validation, people that said, I can use that. I remember a tweet, someone asked us, when can I give you my money? It was very, very clear we got a waiting list in a couple of weeks of mm -hmm. around, I think, 1,000 people wanting to try and use TalkDesk. So that was it. Um, I guess that validation gave us the confidence to drop everything else we were doing uh, and concentrate on the TalkDesk product like 
full-time, 24-7, which was basically what we did. I mean, it's always the positive early customer feedback that gets an entrepreneur excited to only focus on this one project to uh, get it ground off. But then Talkdesk raised $25 million in two rounds from top-tier investors like Storm Ventures, DFJ, and Salesforce Ventures. Did you struggle to raise capital in the U.S. as immigrant founders with offices in Portugal? Was there any bias against that back then? I would say no. There were some biases, but more on the customer side, um, but on the investment side, not at all. Mm -hmm. For example, Jason Lemkin, when he invested, we were a team of seven people, all Portuguese. Tiago was based in the U.S. and everyone else was based in Lisbon. And they invested in a package that was a founding team that had gone to the U.S. and had significant traction from U.S. customers. Uh, I mean, if all our customer base was in Portugal or in Europe, then yes, I would say uh, it would be a little bit more challenging. And we see that with some portfolio companies today. But the entire package, we had a super strong customer base in the U.S. We had presence there. One of the founders was there, but then everyone else was in Portugal and we happened to be Portuguese. So that was never an issue. But on the customer side, I remember very well picking up the phone and telling our customers I was calling from the European office. I wouldn't even say Portugal uh, because first I thought they knew where that was at the time. Now, of course, like Portugal became a little bit more popular because of tourism. But back then, it was just a too small country in that <laughs> corner of the world. Um, so I used to say, hey, I'm calling from the European office. Like, pretend we were a little bit more serious than people thought we were. It's too small for an average American to know of. Um, the advantages of hiring in Portugal are obvious. But what were some of the disadvantages? I mean, did you struggle to sustain the culture across borders? Did you struggle to build a team in the US? I think we, looking back and seeing how other companies are trying to build presence in the US, but also have a strong core in Europe, looking back, I think we did a lot of things right, but it's challenging nonetheless. Um, because of time zone, it's eight hours difference. So always a challenge to coordinate everyone. Uh, you need to make an extra effort communicating, uh, noting things down, organizing work. So then like the team that sits on the other side is not lost because in theory, like the work day doesn't even overlap. Of course, that was an additional struggle because of course you need to stay up late. And we had managers that had to wake up at 5 a.m. to be able to speak with teams and keep the company going. Um, sales is very, very challenging to hire in Portugal. So you don't have sales and marketing talent at scale that understands software as a service. Today is a little bit different because TalkVesk has been training some people. But back then, you didn't have people that understood SaaS tech product companies. So we hired those in the US. And here, our investors really helped us put in place the right structure. It was very clear from the beginning. And after we raised the round with Jason Lemkin, like our goals were to open an office in the US and set up sales and marketing departments there, leaving product and engineering in Portugal. And I see companies today start in Portugal or in whatever country, they hire some sales and marketing people, and then they want to go international. And that jump is very difficult to make because, I mean, you don't want to leave the team behind. Then there's a gap in terms of time zone, even culture. That's a difficult move to make. And we, by setting up everything from the beginning in the US, 
I mean, it gave us a huge advantage. Then the coordination was a little bit more difficult. There's amazing engineers in Portugal, and we were able to take advantage of that. Of course, culture-wise, sometimes the people that sit in Portugal don't understand the U.S. culture, and the people from the U.S. don't understand the Portuguese culture. Europe is way more conservative. Labor laws are different. People haven't, like, employees in Portugal, they haven't seen tech companies grow, like, go bust, be successful and go IPO. So most of the times, they don't even understand the game they are playing. For example, more recently, some of these companies had to lay people off because of COVID. I mean, if you have a plan and you believe you're going to grow the company to fold in the next year or year and a half, and the world economy changed and like you're not sure anymore you'll be able to grow that way, but you have the team ready for that, I mean, you need to let some people go in order to adjust and don't burn the money that was saved to fuel that growth. And people simply don't understand. They don't understand that they are playing the game of tech companies. is very specific. It's focused on growth. And it's a little bit of a binary game. And this has to do with the fact that people look around and this is not the type of companies they see. So we at Stalkdesk made a specific effort to like have people travel and learn the culture of the other side. For example, within engineering, quite early stage, we created this engineering abroad program. So every three months, we would send three engineers to the US to spend three months there, pass the context to sales, learn, you know, like more interact with Google, go to meetups and be close to this tech epicenter uh, that is Silicon Valley. And that worked quite well. And people learned that they were part of an organization playing a very specific game that has nothing to do with the traditional companies that you see around you in Portugal. That's amazing. I love the engineering abroad program. I'll actually try to implement it in some of our portfolio companies. Talktesk became an inspiration for a lot of entrepreneurs. And I like to call entrepreneurs like yourself the Renaissance entrepreneurs. Um, the entrepreneurs that become the first home run success story and um, they transfer knowledge from places like Silicon Valley and become a training ground for almost um, a lot of the new entrepreneurs to come of the next generation of entrepreneurs, as to say. Toltesk became the first unicorn in the contact center as a space as well um, in 2018 as you guys raised another $100 million. What's the end goal for Toltesk? Do you think it will continue to be a standalone company? Or will it be acquired by one of the enterprise software giants? <laughs> That's a billion dollar question. <laughs> I would say, <laughs> literally. So I would say we'll probably become, like, continue to be standalone. We are still in a growth path. But of course, it depends on the check that eventually a giant can come and offer to us. But I mean, it's what we need to focus on and what we are focused on is to sustain the growth Keep innovating because that's something that is core to our company and the business and the industry. Uh, we started by innovating in a quite old school industry and that's still one of our focuses. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so we are still in the growth path, like optimizing to stay standalone, uh, but we never know. <laughs> yeah, it is a billion dollar question, but it's great to hear that at least there's a price tag um, attached to it. <laughs> and, and, like, and the industry knows that. So, <laughs> And it's interesting. I mean, the more you, like, the further you go, of course, there's, act, like, billion-dollar acquisitions every week in the market, and that can happen for sure. But the more you grow, the less probable it is, because the cluster of companies that can come and write you a check becomes smaller. So, I mean, 
the bar becomes higher. So you need to keep growing and keep fighting to get more market share, more adoption, get more customers. So it's a little bit of a reinforcement cycle. Yeah, then it becomes an endless game that you have to continue playing. Exactly. <laughs> it never said like it's a difficult game to play. Yeah. Let's jump to Indico Partners for a while. Portugal arguably has a really shallow local market, uh, which I believe is better as it pushes more entrepreneurs to think global from day one, just like in Israel, Estonia or Sweden. And Indico Partners' focus is also to invest in companies that have global aspirations. But are there any verticals that are deep enough to stay local and still become a large company? And if so, would you make an exception and invest in them? Well, to have a company that's locally in Portugal, I don't believe there's a tech company that can meet our goals in terms of fund at all. There's for sure some companies that start in Portugal, use it as a test market, which 10 years ago, I think it was more challenging. Like today, some of those companies exist. We call them local to global models. Mm -hmm. And we've invested in some of them. I'm thinking, for example, Barkin, which is a everything your dog needs subscription, uh, including food, goodies and vet services. They started in Portugal. They tested uh, the market in Portugal and then they went abroad. Uh, Eat Tasty is another one of those cases. Even Infraspeak, which is a, a SaaS solution for facility management. They started in Portugal. They have like decent market share. And they are scaling now. But a company that stays in Portugal, I mean, I don't believe that mm -hmm. is possible at all. It's too small of a market. So, yeah, no. <laughs> I would invest in, in them if that was true, but I don't think <laughs> that's true. That's true, yeah. In Turkey, um, given that we're more of a mid-scale market, both from a population and economy perspective, um, I would say 50% of our deal flow are companies that are only locally focused, but only 10% of our portfolio are companies that are only locally focused. So even in Turkey, or even if you go to Italy, I don't believe staying local would give you outsized returns um, as a VC fund in probably almost all of the verticals. And just like talk this... Exactly, but how big is the Turkey population? Because Portugal is 10 million people. Yeah, it's like 85 million-ish. Exactly. It doesn't compare. Do you have any unicorn-like company based in Turkey that stayed in Turkey? I don't think so, but... Oh, yeah. So I think in Turkey, the first generation of success stories were local businesses, like local e-commerce, local food delivery, local eBay, um, which actually got acquired by eBay. None of those became unicorns because they were just local market-focused. And this was 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second generation of entrepreneurs, which came, I would say, after 2013, either had regional focuses. So they wanted to start in Turkey, but then grow regionally around Europe, Middle East or Southeast Asia. Or they had global aspirations and they would relocate really fast, open an office in the US and then grow there. And a lot of the success stories, like one company got acquired by Microsoft last year, another one got acquired by Atlassian. Just last week, we had a 1.8 billion dollar exit to Zynga, a Turkish gaming company got acquired by Zynga. All of those were globally focused companies with technology offices in Turkey. So that's the model to go with. Yeah, exactly. Same in Portugal, pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. So I suppose almost all of your portfolio companies have their technology offices in Portugal, but they do sales and marketing elsewhere. Do they mostly target the US market or do they aspire to become pan-European? It depends. It's true that most of our portfolio companies, I think all of them, have tech offices in Portugal, that's for sure. When going abroad, some of them go to London if you are targeting more the European market. Some of them think Berlin, especially like B2C, I'm thinking of a couple, uh, was Next, the target to grow sales and marketing is Berlin, basically because of talent. And there's uh, a lot of companies there, especially on the e-commerce and B2C side, that 
have trained people and so there's the expertise to do that. London, probably more B2B. And some of them, of course, want to go to the U.S., because it's SaaS software, the US is the obvious choice. It depends because most of them are still early stage. Mm -hmm. They are still in Portugal. But one of my last learnings is that if you try to create sales and marketing in Portugal, then it's very, very challenging to make the shift to somewhere else. And some of, I've seen companies relocate super expensive sales and marketing people uh, from abroad to Portugal, because, of course, they want to keep the culture. And there's lots of advantages in having an everyone together working as part of the same office. But then they are capping the talent that they can get and their like growth in those units. Or they end up hiring people that they need to train. And that takes time. And maybe you don't have that time. So it's a little bit more risky to do it that way. Uh, right now, my best recommendation is that you should open an office somewhere else, either Berlin, London, or the US, for sales and marketing as early as possible, because uh, having people like come to Portugal to help you on that, um, I mean, opens a structure that it's unsustainable. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to bite you a little bit in the future. Yeah, like looking into our portfolio, the companies that started in very mature spaces, they can't go to the US. That would be suicidal. So they grow locally. They grow their team locally. They build a bit differentiating product. And then they want to expand internationally. But they still can't go to the US because a product that was successful in Turkey, arguably, wouldn't be successful in the US because of the different market dynamics. So they have to go to markets that are similar to Turkey, which are more regional markets. But the companies who are in more immature spaces, more blue ocean spaces, they need early adapters, they need high enterprise budgets, and a lot of the SaaS companies also fall into that category. They try to go to the U.S. from day one, even as they're growing the team from five to ten. They try to employ people in the U.S. Um, they have to have a they try to have a global culture within the company where only spoken language is English, etc. I see that Indico also has more of a B two B focus, looking at your website, much like our fund. But interestingly, you've done a lot of consumer investments. Actually, you've done more consumer investments than enterprise. Would you agree that creating a global B2B success story is easier than creating a global B2C success story? And if so, why? Well, for us, I would say that's easier because B2C usually needs more marketing dollars. <laughs> uh, and uh, if you start in Europe, cash is a little bit more scarce. <laughs> so... B2B is more natural. Personally, having a B2B background, like I prefer B2B. But I think has my generation traveled abroad, have seen, uh, worked in like the US, Berlin, the UK, they've seen B2C companies start. Some of our founders were part of these types of companies. So there's nothing that the world is quite global. If they set to build a B2C a B2, to company and we believe the right foundation, founding team, the right problem is being solved, then why not invest? That's why we ended up doing more, more B2C marketplace uh, type investments than B2B. Mm -hmm. B2B, I think it's still easier to build a B2B success case in from Portugal, not only because our engineering team and universities are very, very strong and people are very good on the technical side. And on the B2B, if you have a killer product, like creating the right distribution channels and having the right structure in place, you can become a global leader. Uh, I mean, of course, you need capital and whatnot, but compared to B2C, where you need massive marketing budgets, 
uh, I would say it's easier. So if you look at the Portuguese success stories, which are TalkFask, OutSystems, Farfetch, and then there's uh, Feedsai and, and, and a couple more in a very good position, it's all B2B and Farfetch is a marketplace. Yeah. And our portfolio is like, pretty much the same, follows the same pattern, mm-hmm. although we have more marketplaces than B2B still. But I see that changing, to be honest. Now with the new batch of accelerator companies, there's a lot of B2B as well. Yeah, same in Turkey. If you look into success stories, I would say a lot of them are global success stories, obviously not the local ones, but a lot of them um, are B2B. But then if you look at the great success stories like Peak Games, which got acquired for $1.8 billion, or Udemy, the education technology company, which is worth $2 billion now, they are B2C because the nature of B2C is their winner-takes-it-all markets. Whereas in B2B, they tend to be much more fragmented. And even if you're the 20th largest contact center software, for example, you'd still be big enough and you would be acquirable, which gives comfort, I guess, to venture capitalists, including myself. If you compare Portugal to other Western European countries, say uh, Germany, Spain, France, etc., what are some of the advantages from a talent perspective? From a talent perspective, um, for sure, the fact that we are smaller than all those countries So we learn to be resourceful. Technically, there's good universities everywhere, uh, but being a small country gives us these... First, we speak good English uh, compared to all of them. We have more of a global mindset, especially if you're speaking with a founder that's ambitious. Your uh, ambition is never to conquer Portugal because that's too small for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you think global from day one, uh, sometimes we compare ourselves with Israel, not that it's it's, yeah. it's the same the same type of, of ecosystem, but it's small country with very good engineering talent and global mindset. You start by building a product not for the local market but for the global market, and you know that the tests that you want to make most likely you're going to try to do them in a country that's more competitive than your own, and you are born global, mm-hmm. uh, which makes total difference yeah i think there are a lot of advantages to being small i mean we're all startup investors so we know the advantages of being small and nimble but that applies to countries as well and i coined the term called the population paradox where countries like portugal sweden estonia or israel would give more unicorns would have more unicorns than mid-market countries like france germany spain italy or turkey um, so I think being small is definitely an advantage. Now, there are more and more VCs that are looking um, into Portugal, whether coming from Western Europe or the US. Do you think that's a threat to the local ecosystem or an advantage? It's an advantage. Uh, I prefer to see that as an advantage. Of course, there's a lot of VCs and investors looking at the Portuguese market. Also, more and more, the early stage is a local game. So uh, as funds become bigger and bigger, um, like you're not going to write a half a million check to a Portuguese company that you met at an event mm-hmm. and make that part of your portfolio and take the, the time and efforts to help that company mature a little bit. Uh, you're probably going to wait until they are, they are ready to raise at least one to five million from you and you leave the early stage to the local investors. So it's very good that Portuguese companies are getting attention from international investors um, but I still believe the super early stage, the pre-seed and seed, is more of a local game. And we are very happy that we play that game. And we know the companies, uh, we spend time with those. I mean, we travel to their offices. 
And that local connection needs to exist. I would say international investors can't do that as we do. So there's room for both. Yeah. And our goal, I, I explain this to companies, look, my goal is to give you money, help you grow, help you build a solid business or at least have, have a very decent base and then call all these investors that are interested in Portugal and co-invest with them in the next round. So that's our mission. We are very happy to have investors look at our portfolio companies all the time um, and we hope they bring not only the interest but also the money. Yeah, <laughs> this is a proximity-based business and even more so in the early stage. So looking into our portfolio, we were able to attract international investors at Series B or Series C. But even when you get to Series A, it's tough to convince someone which is miles or kilometers away from you to invest into a country that they don't know of. So I think international investors mostly come for later stages. And if they feel confident, which is what happened in Israel, then they might set up local offices, local teams, local funds, which is, again, better for the ecosystem in the long run anyways. Um, now I want to move to the three quick fire questions. Let's say you're not allowed to work for a year and you can live anywhere you want. Which city would that be? Well, tough question. Uh, I always wanted to live for a couple of months in New York, so maybe <laughs> that would be a choice, but I'm very divided between New York, as you asked, uh, uh, for a city mm -hmm. um, and a remote island where I can read nonstop and uh, get some sun. But if I have to pick a city, I'm very curious with living in New York for a couple of New months. New York. Yeah, not the best days for New York these days. Um, because of COVID. No, not, not at all. But I mean, considering pre-COVID world, yeah. probably New York. Yeah. Or hopefully post-COVID world uh, sometime soon. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> if you had to rename uh, Indico, what would you name it to? If I had to rename Indico, so Indico comes from the Indian Ocean, which the Portuguese uh, discoverers like traveled and uh, used to the advantage and it's part of our entrepreneurial history probably atlantic which is a little bit closer to us <laughs> uh, i have no better name than atlantic makes sense <laughs> nice one and um if you had to donate your whole net worth to one private company and the keyword here is donate which company would that be i don't have the name of a company but i have a sector um that i really support and i believe it's fundamental in so many ways which is education so i would for sure donate uh, uh, my net worth to education because that's the foundation of uh, i mean like you solving the world's problems getting better as human beings uh, being more, more tolerant i mean there's so many things that you learn if you invest in education and I think benefit society uh, like massively. So for sure it would be education sector. I still don't know. of uh, I don't have a company name, but this would be it. Yeah, education is a long game and definitely has the best ROI uh, for humanity. Yeah. Well, Christina, thanks for joining the CC podcast. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Portugal has come a long way and put itself on the map as one of the upcoming ecosystems that I believe will start creating one unicorn every year. Toltesk was one of the home run success stories that made a difference for the ecosystem and paved the way for many entrepreneurs. Portugal is getting more attention from international investors, but I'm on the same page with Cristina that early stage investing is a proximity game. In fact, a lot of the investors only want to invest into their 40 mile radius. This means all the interest by international investors for later stages will create even more local investors focused on seed stage. This is going to be it for today. Stay safe and see you next time. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, 
or follow us at GetCC'd on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.